It's a real pleasure to be with you all this morning. Uh, Thanks very much to Raymond for the kind hospitality uh, this weekend. I wonder if you would turn with me to the book of 2 Kings and chapter 2. It's one of the stranger incidents we're going to look at this morning in the Old Testament, but an incident that I think is nonetheless instructive uh, for Christianity and Christians in the modern world. First of all, let's just pray that the Lord will bless the the reading and the preaching of his word. Oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we come before you on this, the morning of your day, to ask that you might meet with us through the proclamation of your sacred and holy word. Lord, as we reflect upon actions and events of many, many hundreds of years ago, we pray, O Lord, that the great truths, the great lessons, the things that you are demonstrating about your character and about your relationship to your people might come alive to us and that you might seal your gospel once more upon our hearts and minds so that we leave this place refreshed. We ask all of these things knowing, Lord, that we are utterly dependent upon you to act in these circumstances. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I've healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Praise God for his holy word. I don't know uh, why you're here this morning. Perhaps you're a Christian of many years standing. Perhaps you're somebody who's recently become interested in Christianity and interested in what the Bible teaches. And we know there are some great and epic stories within uh, the narrative that you find in the Bible. The story of David and Goliath, the story uh, surrounding uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps uh, you're not familiar with the Bible and this is the first time that you've ever come across this passage. Or maybe you're somebody who's read the Bible many years and you come to this passage and for all that you want to honor the Word of God as the Word of God, you read a passage like this, particularly that last section with this strange incident 
with the she-bears and these young boys coming out of Jericho. And you said, this just seems like a fairy tale. It seems like a trivial incident that bears no significance whatsoever for our lives today. Well, what I want to do today is suggest that if we understand this passage in its context, actually we will see that the message of this passage, the whole of this passage, is a very, very pressing one for each and every one of us, Christian and non-Christian, this morning. I want to suggest that this passage, the three incidents in this passage, address three important myths, three important, we might say, untruths that we tell about the world and about God. The first myth is this, that the big personality or the strong man or the hero is the answer to whatever our problem is. That's the first myth. The second myth is this, that one can be too dirty or too wicked for God to clean or to forgive. And the third myth is almost the, uh, the antithesis or the counterpoint to the second myth. The third myth is this, that God is so endlessly indulgent that we can treat him as we wish indefinitely and expect to get away with it. Over against that, I think this passage teaches us three truths that contradict each of those three myths. First of all, God teaches us that he is present through his spirit and his word, not through the strong man. Secondly, this passage teaches us that God's word can reverse even the deepest curse and cleanse even the filthiest person. And thirdly, this passage teaches us that God's judgment is real and it is there to frighten us. Even as the outward people of God, we will see in this passage, God's judgment is real and is there to frighten us. So first of all then, my first point, the strong man is not the answer, but God is present by his spirit and his word, not by big personalities. The passage we read takes place at a key moment in the history of Israel. We've, for the last generation, there has been a conflict, a battle going on between God and Baal, between the prophet Elijah and the representatives of the god Baal, specifically uh, Jezebel, the royal household of, Be of uh, 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 Ahab, and his consort, his queen Jezebel, has been the most powerful representative of Baal worship within Israel. And Elijah has, from the perspective of the public, we might say, though we know he's not the only one, Elijah has really been the figurehead of the pro-Jehovah, anti-Baal movement. And Elijah has scored a number of spectacular victories against Baal, most notably uh, the battle against the priests and the prophets of Baal that took place on Mount Carmel some years previously. More recently, Elijah has appointed a successor, Elisha. When Elijah, after the uh, battle on Mount Carmel, goes into a depression, which is, you know, there are many points in Scripture, by the way, where you read and think, yep, yeah, that's very human. 
That's exactly how a human being would respond. And it's interesting that after Elijah's most spectacular victory, he goes into a deep depression. That's very human. When you read the stories of uh, Tour de France winners or Olympic gold medalists, so often they don't live on a permanent high after their spectacular sporting victory. They plunge into terrible depression and questioning about who they are and what the purpose of their life is. It's exactly what happens to Elijah. And while he's sort of struggling with depression, we would say today, the Lord comes to him and says, essentially, uh, you are merely starting the battle. The war begins with you. It's going to be brought to an end by three men. Hazael, king of Syria. Uh, uh, Jehu, son of Nimshi. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And the appointment of Elisha and the, the rise to prominence of Elisha is exactly what's happening in this passage. The man, if you like, that the good guys in Israel have looked to for a generation to lead them, to give them confidence in the struggle, is gone. And the new man, the unproven man, has taken over. And the prophets, we might say the junior prophets, those who worked uh, alongside but were less high profile uh, than Elijah, they're distressed. And again, it's a very human reaction. Their instinct is, we need to find Elijah. We need to find Elijah. Maybe he hasn't gone after all. It's a very human reaction, isn't it? At moments of leadership transition, there can be a tendency to try to keep hold of the previous leader. Some of you may be familiar with the name Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great uh, a British evangelical leader of the six, well, really from the, the 40s through to the late 70s. He died in 1981. I was uh, a Christian of a generation uh, growing up after his death. I remember time and again hearing older Christians of the Lloyd-Jones generation saying, if only we could find another Martin Lloyd-Jones. Where's the next Martin Lloyd-Jones coming from? That's sort of what we're seeing here. It's very human. We like somebody tangible to focus on. We say bodily presence is very important. The reason why sometimes you've got to go to a very difficult meeting, it's good to go with a friend. Because we like somebody bodily present with us. When it comes to matters of leadership, we like to be able to see the old, familiar, strong leader. The prophets are learning something very important here. The prophets are learning this, that God's presence with his people did not depend upon Elijah's presence. God's presence with his people depended or depends upon the presence of his spirit. And that spirit that once rested on Elijah now rests upon Elisha. Christ's disciples have to learn the same lesson. The last speech to them we have recorded uh, in the upper room in Gospel of John, there's that interesting moment where Jesus has been telling his disciples he's going away. Uh, and he notices that they are depressed. It's a natural human reaction. They're not sinning in feeling sad that their beloved teacher uh, is going away. And Jesus says this, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus there is really pointing towards Pentecost. As mysterious as it is for us, you know, why does Jesus bodily need to go away for the Spirit to come? Well, the Bible's not entirely clear on that, uh, on why that would be the case, but it's certainly clear on that it is the case. Jesus is saying, I've got to go away in order for the Spirit to come in his fullness. The disciples are learning here that Christ is going to be present where his Spirit is present. And as we see as the New Testament moves on, He's present where his spirit is present and where his word is spoken and proclaimed. That becomes the key to Christ's presence. And there's a lesson for us there. Not to attach ourselves, I guess, to so much to earthly Christian leaders. We should really attach ourselves to the church where the word is proclaimed and the spirit is present. It's very interesting when you look at Paul's qualifications for leadership. Paul writes, in, in sort of, he writes Timothy, uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus at sort of a, a similar moment in the church's history to we have in Israel's history here. He's aware that his days are growing short. He and the apostles are going to pass from the scene in the relatively near future. And he must have been aware at that point that people would be anxious. What's the church going to look like? When the familiar guys, the guys who actually knew Jesus, passed from the scene. And so he calls on them to appoint elders. What's fascinating about eldership qualifications is, you often hear people say, you know, the standards for eldership are very high. Well, yes and no. They are very high, but when you look at them, they're also very ordinary. There's nothing that an elder is required to be other than teacher that every Christian shouldn't be required to be. You're not supposed to get drunk. You're supposed to be faithful to your wife. Uh, you're not supposed to fly off the handle and be angry all the time. That's not amazing leadership skill stuff. That's typical Christian stuff. And I think what Paul is saying there is what the church needs in its leadership is role models. What you need in your church's elders is people that you men that you can point your children and say to them, when you grow up, you want to be like that guy. You want to embody, you know, okay, you're a teenager, so dad is the most uncool person you've ever met. But look at that guy over there, that elder. That's what you want to be like when you grow up. Very bland qualifications for eldership. Why? Because the power of the church does not require charisma in its leadership. It requires the power of the Spirit through the Word. That's what these prophets are learning about here today. I love the fact that they're not, there's nothing in the text that implies they're sinful in going to look for Elijah, I don't think. It's natural that they love the man who led them. It's natural that their hearts are breaking now that he's gone from them. But they're not to despair because it was never about Elijah in the first place. It was about God's Spirit. Come then to the second lesson. God's Word can reverse even the deepest curse and cleanse even the dirtiest person. Now, what I'm going to argue in this sermon is that the next two incidents, the incident in Jericho and the incident in Bethel, they need to be understood really as counterpoints to each other and they need to be understood in terms of geography. If you don't get the geography, then you don't quite get what's going on in this passage. 
The context, of course, of the first incident, well, the geographical context is Jericho, taking place in the city of Jericho. It's interesting that as Elisha picks up the mantle of Elijah, the first place he goes to is Jericho. That's significant. Jericho was the first city to fall during the original invasion of the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. Jericho isn't just any old city. Jericho is a city that has profound significance in the history of God's people. So you might say, but, but I thought that Jericho was raised to the ground by Joshua, and so it was. In fact, Jericho was raised to the ground, and then Joshua pronounced, well, laid an oath and pronounced a curse on Jericho. Joshua 6.26, read as follows. Joshua laid an oath on the people at this time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. Joshua essentially says, Jericho is never to exist again. The non-existence of Jericho is to be a witness to God's bringing the promised land into our hands. The flat ground, if you like, where Jericho once stood, the fact that it should remain flat and unbuilt upon will be a testimony to God's faithfulness in bringing his people into the promised land. What's interesting, and it's one of those biblical details that, you know, if you're reading the Bible fast, it's sort of blink and you'll miss it detail. Jericho gets rebuilt. And it gets rebuilt at a very interesting moment in Israel's history. It gets built during the reign of Ahab. Now, if you're familiar with the books of Kings, you'll know that uh, Kings of Israel are described in very interesting terms. That typically, you'll be told you know, how long this king was around for. And then you'll be told that he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nimshi, that he had taught the people of Israel to sin. The sins of Jeroboam, son of Nimshi, were worshipping the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. Jeroboam commands the northern kingdom, first king of the northern kingdom. He's got a political problem. His people are going to need to travel to Jerusalem to do their sacrifices and worship God. So he comes up with this brilliant but rather blasphemous solution to his problem, the problem of the divided geographical loyalties of his people, by setting up golden calves. You've got to sort of uh, step back in horror at the sort of the black humor, I think, that involved in doing that. He sets up golden calves at Bethel and Dan, and he tells the people to worship them there. And every king of Israel is judged by that criterion to the extent that, you know, whatever he did, what he didn't do was he didn't have the courage to break with the cult at Bethel and Dan. Until we get to Ahab. And Ahab, we're told, uh, as if it were a little thing for him to sin the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nimshi, he added this to them, that he married Jezebel, the princess of the Sidonians, and brought Baal worship back into the promised land. That's what makes Ahab so bad. He's not just your run-of-the-mill evil. 
He lifts it up a notch. And it's at that moment that we might say, humanly speaking in the narrative, the Lord seems to say, enough is enough. I am going to declare war against my own people. I am cutting off the water supply, and I'm going to bring them to their knees. And if they think Gebel, the god of rain and fertility, can rescue them, well, they're welcome to pray to him. Well, just to underline how wicked Ahab was, we get this detail in 1 Kings 16. In Ahab's days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Jericho is rebuilt. Think about the significance of that. Think about the significance of that. The rebuilding of Jericho is not just, well, he spots a bit of un, un, uh, undeveloped land and decides to build a city on it. No, it's actually part of the overall Ahab project of erasing Jehovah from the history and the identity of the people. You bring back the old gods and you rebuild the cities, the destruction of which marked the expulsion of those gods from the land. In that context, it is not surprising to find that the water in this territory is cursed. Translation, I think, says the water was unfruitful. In actual fact, the word is stronger than that. The word is the water miscarries. What's really being implied here is that not only does the water not fertilize crops, but animals and probably human beings who drink this water will miscarry. Women who drink water from this spring will lose their babies. That's how cursed this place is. And in this uh, context, of course, we have this Elisha move. He calls for this bowl and throws salt in it. It's a, a classic sort of prophetic, dramatic action. It's not the dramatic action, though, that's the most signal thing that's going on here. It's the word. This is what the Lord says, Elisha says, I have healed this water. And the water is immediately cleansed. Notice, it's the word of God. It's not Elisha. Elisha doesn't say, I clean this water. Elisha calls upon God. God declares the water to be clean. Like I said in the point one, the presence and power of God is not attached to a powerful personality. It's the presence of the word that makes the difference. The word of God reverses the curse under which Jericho labors. And this, I think, demonstrates a number of things that we can draw from this passage. First of all, we learn something about the character of God. I would say this. One of the things we learn in this passage is that God prefers mercy to justice. Exodus 15, 22 to 26. The Israelites complaining about God. Again, the water's bad, there is no water, etc., etc. God gives them water. He could easily have come against them in justice at that point. But he doesn't. He comes to them in mercy. It's the root of the plan of salvation. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
the root of the plan of salvation is that God prefers mercy to justice. Secondly, we see the depth and power of his grace. I might put it more strongly. I would say there is no hole so dark and no cesspit so foul that God's word cannot make it light and clean. Jericho's very existence is an offense to God at this point. It is the last place on earth one might have expected mercy. And yet as blasphemous as the very existence of Jericho is at this point, that is the town to which God's mercy comes at that precise moment. And this isn't just a one-off. What we see here is a, an adumbration, a foreshadowing of what we will see in Christ's time. Think of Jerusalem in Christ's time, occupied by Rome. An unclean people from a Jewish perspective, tramping all over Jerusalem. A corrupt religious leadership. A temple that has been made into a place of buying and selling. The people of Jerusalem themselves turning on the Lord's Christ and demanding his execution. And yet that is where God's grace is most powerfully and decisively and finally, in many ways, expressed. John's Gospel opens by telling us that God is light in whom there is no darkness, and that in Christ God has shone his light into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. On the contrary, the light has overcome the darkness. Christians, think of your own lives and of the Lord's merciful dealings with you despite who you are. And if you're not a Christian today, don't fear to turn to God for mercy in Christ. I think the devil's most effective lie is this. You are too dirty for God. That if you reach out to touch God, you will make him dirty. No, the lesson of this passage is God cleanses the dirt. When the woman with the unclean flow of blood touched Christ, she did not make Christ dirty. He made her clean. When Christ touched the dead body of Jairus' daughter, the dead body did not, as the Old Testament would strongly indicate that it should have done, make Christ unclean. The body itself became clean as life was restored to it. There is no hole so dark and no cesspit so foul, no soul so foul, that God's word and God's grace cannot make it light or make it clean. And that brings me then to the third incident. You know, I joke, you know, I'm a bald guy, self-evidently. Is the, is the lesson of this passage that there is street justice for bald guys at the end of time. You cannot... I notice there are a few brothers out there who struggle with exactly the same, uh, I would say who have exactly the same physical advantage as I have myself. Uh, it's certainly cheap on haircuts. My wife just clippers me every two, three or four weeks. I haven't paid for a haircut for 15 years, I don't think. Uh, nor do I have to worry about my hair. My wife spends a lot of time worrying about her hair. The Lord has relieved me of that worry many, many years ago. 
I want to suggest that this passage teaches us that God's judgment is to frighten us. We're not to trivialize this passage by seeing it as a kind of fairy story. No, there's a very serious lesson being taught here. And again, context, geographical context is key. I've already mentioned Bethel in this sermon. Remember Bethel? That's the place where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, set up the golden calves. As Jericho is historically significant, and not just a random town, so Bethel is very significant. By the time this incident takes place, we probably had about 70, 75 years of idolatry percolating through the population. Secondly, we need to disabuse ourselves of a few things that just a surface reading of the passage might imply. We might say, well, is this just you know, Elisha having a particularly bad day when a gang of tiny little boys comes running out of the town and pulls his leg about being bald? That's not the case at all. If we dig deeper, it will be clear that that is not the case at all. First of all, uh, the ESV, I think, badly translates... Uh, the passage as small boys. They're not small boys. These are probably 12 to 14-year-olds. That's very different from 4 to 5-year-olds. These are 12 to 14-year-olds. Uh, my wife and we actually lived in uh, just outside Philly for 17 years. And some of you may remember, I think it was 7 or 8, 9 years ago, uh, the streets of Philly were being terrorized uh, by a gang of girls. I think they were 14 to 15 years old. And they were beating people up on the street and spreading terror. Gangs of 14 to 15-year-old kids are not comical. They can be very scary when they have malice in their hearts and an intention of violence. And that brings me to my second point. We might read this passage and think, well, it's a bit like he's walking down the street. We've all done this, haven't we? Walk down the street and there's a bunch of ne'er-do-wells hanging around on the corner and they just, you know, shout and jeer at you as you go by. No. We're told they come out of the town. They're on the hunt. This is a pack of teenagers on the hunt. It's not that he was just passing them on the street. He's out of town. They're on the hunt. And thirdly, I would suggest they're on the intentional hunt for Elisha. How do I know they're on the intentional hunt for Elijah? Because they know what he looks like. Well, you might say, well, how do they know that? All we hear in the passage is they say, go up, you old bald head. Yes, but the bald brothers in the congregation will understand this. Uh, during the summer months, it is hard to tell that we are bald. Because when we go outside, we wear hats. If I'm going to a smart occasion, like a wedding, I'll wear a Panama. If I'm just going outside to go for a walk or something, I'll wear a baseball cap. But I will always keep my head covered. Uh, you don't know what weird pain is until you've sunburned your head and you lie in bed at night and you feel it. It's as if your head is expanding by a foot and then shrinking back as the blood flows through it. It is a very uncomfortable experience. This is the ancient Near East. This is very sunny. Elisha will have been wearing a headdress. No way that he's wandering around bald. He's wearing a headdress. 
But they know he's bald. They've got word that the man of God is going past town. And they've gone out to hunt for him. And it's a big pack. We told 42 of them are savage. The implication of that is there are at least 43 of them. Possibly considerably more. But 42 is not a small number of young men out on the hunt to cause trouble. And they know who he is. They're looking for him. They know it's the man of God thereafter. And remember the significance of the man of God. He is the one who is God's representative. They're not just gunning for a man. They're gunning for the man who represents God. And that, of course, leads to the punishment that we'll come to in a moment. But let's think about this. What does this represent? I would say it represents a catastrophic failure of the culture of parenting in Bethel. A catastrophic failure. We all know that when, I jokingly say in class sometimes, when young guys get together, the moral sum of the whole is always less than the sum of the parts. My boys were good kids. My wife and I didn't worry so much when they went out on their own. We typically worried when they went out with their friends, who were also good kids. We just know that the more young guys you put together, the moral level drops and drops and drops. If, you've been, if you're a guy, you remember this yourself. I don't know why it's the case, but it is. It's a universal rule of male nature that that's the case. But even so, the pack hunting of violent young men represents a catastrophic failure of parenting. And what do you expect in a place like Bethel? This is a town renowned for its idolatry, for its false worship. I want to suggest this has lessons for us, first of all, about responsibilities as parents. If it was one or two kids, kids rebel for many reasons, and I don't want to say anything today that will further break the heart of a parent who's done everything they can for their child and the child has still rebelled. Uh, my wife and I sometimes look at our kids who turned out pretty well, and we've got friends who we would say were better parents than us, and their kids have rebelled. Kids rebel for many reasons. But we need to make sure with rearing our children that whatever the reason they rebel is, it's nothing to do with the failure on our part. The one thing that our friends with the rebellious kids can do is go to sleep at night knowing that nothing they did caused their children to go down the path of destruction that they've chosen. Children rebel for many reasons, but may it never be said that it happens because parents fail to teach them respect for God's word and the importance of faithful involvement in the life of the church. Years ago, I heard uh, the Archbishop of Philadelphia, some of you may remember him, Archbishop Chaput. He's one of the uh, most outspoken uh, archbishops, Roman Catholic archbishops in the United States, has taken some very courageous stands on something's not least, I think, last week. He said that Joe Biden is no longer in communion with the Catholic Church because of his stance on abortion. And I was at a lecture he gave, and somebody asked him, does the church not need to change in order to keep its young people? Now, I'm not here advocating for Roman Catholicism, but I was struck by his answer. His answer was, young people are leaving the church because people of my generation and your generation didn't teach them it was important in the first place. And he said, if you miss church on a Sunday morning to go to a ball game, he said, you are teaching your kids that ball games are more important than church. 
Do not come to me, he said, crying when your kids wander away from the church if that is how you behave. It's powerful, but I think it's true. And I think it's what we see here. Catechizing, teaching our kids the whole character of God, making sure that they're in church on a Sunday to hear the word of God. These are all important things. I'm inclined as I read this passage, what do you expect? This is Bethel. Of course these kids are wild. Of course they hate the man of God because that's what their parents have taught them to do. And don't forget, this is not the Philistines. This is the people of God that's happening to. It's the Israelites. It's the Israelites who occupy Bethel, not the Philistines at this point. And that brings me then to my last point, and that's this. And again, it rises from a question. You might say, but even so, is it not a bit random and arbitrary that 42 of these thugs get savaged by a bear? That's a bit crazy. That comes out of the blue. I would say no. That's actually what the Bible in the Old Testament teaches the Old Testament, Old Covenant people to expect. Leviticus 26 makes it very clear. Listen to what Leviticus 26, 21 says. If you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And then comes verse 22. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. It's predicted in Leviticus. Some commentators say, this is such a random fairy. Somebody stuck this in later. It's a kind of random fairy story. No. This passage, both the Jericho passage and this passage, are talking about how God responds to his covenant people in different ways. This is a stern warning passage. It's a stern warning especially, I think, to those who have been brought up under the word. This is a warning to God's people, God's outward people, those who have been brought up and who sit under the word. God's judgment can be very real, even for those brought up in the church. (coughs) Perhaps, indeed, that judgment might be even more terrible for them because of the advantages and the blessings they have had for which they will have to give an account at some point. (coughs) It's a challenge to parents. Teach your children to respect the word. Your culture could rapidly become the culture of Bethel, if that is not the case. It's a reminder, I think, as well to us that Sunday school and church are important, but can only do so much. The culture of the home is of vital importance here as well. It's a challenge to young people here to be serious about the word. It's a challenge to young people to choose whom you will follow. Will you learn the whole counsel of God or will you turn your back on it? Well, look at the culture. Look at the fate of these young men here. So these passages then, far from being odd fables, are of profound significance for understanding God's dealings with his people. The reality of his judgment is there to frighten us. But to end on a positive note, let us not forget the lesson of the second incident at which we looked. There is no place so dark 
No soul so blackened by rebellion that the grace of God cannot make it light and clean. Let's pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gifts towards us. We thank you for your word this morning. We do pray, O Lord, that you would allow us to take that word to heart, that we might examine ourselves. Lord, that we might remain faithful to your call. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.